Welcome to Miller Kane, a true and exact history. This is a special bonus episode of the Miller Kane podcast. On August 22nd, the Inlander hosted a live Miller Kane rap party at the Big Dipper in Spokane. The event was hosted by best-selling author Jess Walter. He joined Miller Kane author Samuel Ligon on stage to talk about the process of writing a serial novel. A note to listeners, this podcast episode includes some profanity and may not be suitable for all listeners. Here's Jess Walter introducing the event. We're here tonight to celebrate uh, Miller Kane, Sam Liggins, uh, serialized novel in The Inlander. So let's give a big hand. When they asked me if I, if I would introduce Sam, um, I what could I say? He's one of my great friends, a writer I really respect, and so I said, will there be booze there? And they said yes, so um, here I am. I'm so glad to be here, uh, I, and I was so pleased to see so many people come out and uh, because I've loved this whole adventure from the very beginning. When I talk to people about writing, especially novels, there are two things that, two big misconceptions that I think they have. The first is how, um, just how improvisational writing is. They will say, why did this happen? Why did this character do that? Why did the ending do this? Uh, and as writers, we know we're really like hanging on by the seat of our pants, just doing the best we can, trying to get from place to place. The other thing I don't think people quite understand is how physical writing a novel is. It is really a marathon. It wears you out. And so when my friend Sam told me he was thinking of writing a serialized novel, knowing those two things, that it's improvisational and that it's physical, I knew like, oh, this is going to be so hard. And I was so pleased both at his uh, audacity and his courage to do it. And then uh, I heard him read um, one of his hero villain pieces. And I just thought, oh, this is exactly the vehicle um, for this kind of thing. So we're here to celebrate Sam's great work and uh, to thank the Inlander for their audacity and courage in publishing a serialized novel in the year 2019. I have about 30 pages about the history of the serialized novel, but I'll try to uh, boil it down. The serialized novel was the novel. In the, in the 19th century, this was how you came to a novel. It was in your newspaper. This was the dominant form of, of um, reading for people. So novels like The Three Musketeers, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Madame Bovary, A Tale of Two Cities, Crime and Punishment, Middlemarch, Treasure Island, Heart of Darkness, The Phantom of the Opera, The Secret Garden, Ulysses, even A Farewell to Arms by Hemingway and Tender as the Night, all the way through the early part of the 20th century, this was how a novel was delivered to you. Uh, I was amazed to see The Count of Monte Cristo was in 173 installments, <laughs> and that Anna Karenina was serialized for four years. Imagine keeping up with something for four years. But it's not that hard to imagine it, because we do it now. It's called television. We are, on, we are in this golden age of television, and from the Sopranos um, all the way forward to now to uh, Fleabag or some show like that, what you're really watching is a novel. And so I really applaud Sam and the Inlander for going back to the roots of what we think of as a serial, as a story that's laid out to us bit by bit that comes to us in this way. 
Um, so Sam's going to come up here and read, and then he and I are going to have a brief conversation, and we're going to open it to questions, and then there'll be music and more drinks um, from a band called Balonely. Is that right? Which I'm so excited for. Sam Ligon is the author of two novels, Among the Dead and Dream, uh, Among the Dead and Dreaming, and Safe in Heaven Dead, and two collections of stories, Wonderland, which is illustrated by Stephen Knezovich, and Drift and Swerve. He is the co-editor with Kate Lebo of Pie and Whiskey, writers under the influence, of which I was one under the influence. Um, from the moment I heard Sam read that first hero villain, like I said, I thought this is a form I haven't seen. It's both profane and absurd and seemed to get truer the more profane and absurd it got. It was somehow satirical and yet weirdly deeply earnest. I still don't know how he accomplished that. Um, those sections anchor within Miller Kane, the story of this guy, Miller Kane, who is a massacre counselor and slightly unhinged textbook author who is the hero of the novel and who accompanies a girl named Carlene across the country. I get asked to write a lot of blurbs, uh, but I have to say this is the first time I was asked to write a blurb before reading the book. <laughs> It was a difficult one to write, except Sam had actually given me the first third of the novel, and I'm so pleased that not only does the novel rise to the level of the blurb I wrote, but it's, um, uh, it's so much better. So if it's not too egotistical, I may quote myself uh, in introducing Sam, and I called this novel an outrageous road trip acro across American history and hysteria at a moment in which it feels like 200 years of violence, hypocrisy, and cultural insanity are bubbling up in the present moment. Oh, and there's a chase and a cat, and it's hilarious. Sam Ligon. Um, so just talk about how this came about, um, uh, and, and, you know, had you thought ever about, had you noticed serialized novels? So the I way you're a Dickens scholar. Right, I'm a Dickens, I'm a Dickensian. Now, yeah. I don't like Dickens, but I do like um, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, and I didn't know a lot of those names you said. I didn't mm -hmm. know Heart of Darkness yeah. was serialized. I didn't yeah. know the Fitzgerald or the um, Hemingway was. But the way it came about was Jacob's, Jacob Fries, Jacob, where are you? So this, the reason this happened is because of Jacob, who's the editor of The Inlander. And I know many of you read The Inlander or work for The Inlander. We're so lucky to have this paper, because we, not only do we have killer staff writers on that paper, like Daniel Walters, Dan Nalen, Nathan Weinbender, all the people he's got on that paper, he brings other writers in, like Chelsea Martin, he lets me do stuff, uh, Cindy Furman, all kinds of people, and just does this crazy shit in a weekly paper, it's amazing. So it started with Jacob saying, why don't you write a serial novel for the paper? And I was like, that's a crazy idea, I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> and, and then the more I thought about it, I was thinking about a novel, and I, and I thought, I, this would be a cool idea, and I started talking to Jess about it, and Kate, and Rob. And um, finally I decided to do it, and then, but really the thing to know is that I talked to these people, Jess and Jacob and Rob and Kate, and they helped shape the plot, and it was really weird. As a writer, uh, you know, Jess said about the, the thing about the surprise. Usually there's a lot of, um, we, we don't want to know stuff as writers, and I didn't want to know stuff either. But with this book, we really plotted it. And so I would say to Jess, what do you, do you think this, what if, what if she does this? What do you think this guy should be like? What do you think he should do? And we would talk about it. 
which was really, really weird and violated everything I've ever taught. And I've taught here at EWU for like 20 years, and I realize all the things I've said have been complete gigantic lies. And some of my students are in the room. Sorry, I was, I was wrong. Because <laughs> like, don't, you should never talk about the, the work. Yeah. So, I mean, it came about through, I mean, and Jacob would sit and listen to me and be like, mm -mm. or when I sent the pages to, to Jess, he said no, or when Kate said he should, he should go to, uh, he should work on shootings, because it was right after the Freeman shooting happened here. Kate said his scam should be shootings. And I was like, oh, shit. So it was really cool to yeah. have a collaborative project. Yeah, that is cool. And you, so you've written two other novels. This is your third. Um, people are always ask about process. How, when did you know this? How did you know this? This process was totally different than the other two. Because I knew a lot before it. Yeah. How much had you written when the first piece ran? So when the first piece ran, I had 16 installments. So I gave that to Jacob last September. And by, you know, 12 weeks ago, I was up against it every week. So I had, I had a four-month window, 16 out of 50 were done. And then Kate and I went to Hawaii and did a bunch, you know, a bunch of stuff happened and it, it got harder and harder, yeah. but also really cool all the way through. And so, and Jacob was always like, we don't want to have this in the can. We want the pressure of the book on the page. We as a, I mean, his position as an editor was, we want this to be a risk. And it was. So it was really cool to be able to do that and, and, and to have the confidence of Jacob. And he never bugged me. Even when I was getting late at the end, he was never like, what's happening? <laughs> yeah. and, and so just that process of writing fiction on deadline. The, um, as a former journalist, I used to feel like I had a huge advantage on people who had gone into creative writing as you know, sort of artists and had thought, well, the muse isn't really striking. Right, you know? um, or the lines suck. Yeah, right, and, yeah. and as a journalist, if the muse doesn't hit you, you look for another line of work. And yes. so to be on deadline writing fiction, waiting for the lines, waiting for the music to hit you, um, what was that process like? Well, it was horrible, and Jess would often be like, I'd give Jess something on a Friday, right? I mean, this was at the end. Earlier on, I was giving him stuff two weeks or two months ahead of time. And I changed but, my email, remember? <laughs> <laughs> but I'd give him something, oh, this is really good, this is really good. But you know, there's a fundamental problem with all of this, which is this, and he would outline it, and it would be true. And I'd be like, oh, fuck. Um, and I'd have like two days, and I'd think, I don't, I can't do it. There's no way, and he was right, and Kate did the same thing. Um, and I'd be like, ah, I, I don't know how to fix this. And then I would work, and, and, I, and I did, and it got better, and I was able to fix it. Uh, um, but it was really um, challenging, and it was really, um, to my readers' credit, that they were willing to put me through that. You know, to, to say, this just, this isn't good enough, and it's Friday night, or Saturday, and you need to turn this in tomorrow night, so you, you need to stay up for the next 40 hours and fix it. Yeah, and did you? Yes! Yeah. <laughs> and, and where did you write that last section? On the train. On the train from? Chicago, on the way to Chicago and from Chicago. Which is pretty great to be writing this, you know, this road trip. Um, and, and the story, the idea of the road trip, um, framing it with the heroes and villains, that was something that uh, all along you had this Right, idea. always road trip. And where was the road trip going to end initially? Uh, it was going to either be Jamestown or um, uh, Plymouth Rock. 
I mean, the thought was we would move from the peninsula because where he picks up Carlene is out on the peninsula and they, and they go up to uh, Port Townsend. So the thought was move from Port Townsend to either Jamestown or Plymouth Rock. And this was what we, what we Justin and I initially talked about, was that the movement would be the opposite movement of the American uh, you know, expansion and development, white development. We'd move from the peninsula to Jamestown or you know, Plymouth Rock and it would be an, a, a reverse movement. And I, and I couldn't get there. Which I think is such a great definition of what writing a novel is. You know, you, um, I, I often have described structuring a novel as saying, I'm going to drive from Spokane to Miami. I don't know how I'm going to get there, right. but this is sort of my plan. And, uh, and the planning that goes into a novel, the, the plotting, the, um, the building that scaffolding um, is so important, and yet it falls away in the line, in the language, in the music and the poetry of it. And is that what you found happening? That um, that sometimes, it, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but this had to be. This was more plotted than anything I've written. But I liked the plotting. I mean, and just as a master of plot, and so um, I wanted that that plot, the beauty of the plot to come mm -hmm. into it beyond the language. You know, so that was more important to me uh, in this book than anything I've ever done. And I like that. I mean, I'm really into it. And I think the road trip, that shape, is there wherever they end up. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's cool to be on the road. And Kate and I have driven around a lot in the last four or five years. And, it's, and I love being on the road in this country. And I also think it's cool right now just because of what we're going through as Americans. I mean, it makes me feel in many ways more patriotic and I want to be in America and my buddy Rob the other the other main reader Lopez he and I drove down to Georgia last year and I was like and he's you know Latino and I was like let's and I didn't realize this until I read an essay he wrote a couple months ago I was like I pulled over the car I was touching cotton and a cotton a shitty cotton field very poor part of Georgia and Rob's sitting in the car from Brooklyn Latino and he's like get the fuck back in this car I'm going to get shot out here. What are you doing? And I'm being a white guy touching cotton. And, and I didn't realize how um, that's the kind of the privilege talk. Mm -hmm. But also, it's, I mean, I want to be out in our country right now and see it and not be afraid and not be bummed out by stuff that's happening. So the other cool thing about the project was the embrace of our country and trying to um, celebrate it. But also know that we, we've always gone through difficult times. And, and um, almost as a, as a sort of spine of this book are these hero-villain sections, which are absurd and manic and combine historical figures that could never have met, let alone had apparently raucous sex, according right, to the hero-villain right, sections. Right, right. Um, and so uh, th those pieces fitting into a, you know, a narrative, a road narrative, a, um, a picaresque, what, what, what's that like? I mean, what, what was the thought process in pulling those pieces together? And did you, not knowing the end, not knowing where it ends up, you know, you're commenting on America in 2019 with these pieces. And in some ways, that was the perfect vehicle, but it also is, I mean, that's a tough thing to pull off uh, week by week. And weird, and it, and it was weirdly, um, it was kind of, exp like, it, the first thing I wrote of the book was the first hero villain, which was America, her, him, them itself. And I wrote it, it was kind of this crazy piece that I wrote, but I'd been reading history and biography for about two years before I started writing, and I knew there was going to be history, and when I first went to Jacob with the book, and Jess too, and Kate, I said, okay, I think this book is going to be, there's going to be this guy, but there's going to be these other characters, and it's going to be P.T. Barnum, and it's going to be Narcissa Whitman, because here where we are, you know, down in Walla Walla at the Whitman Mission, she's just so interesting to me, so I really wanted a religious figure and a scammer, 
money, and Jesus, because that is our country. I mean, if you think of Jamestown, that's the commercial entry to our country by white people. Plymouth Rock is the pilgrim entry, the religious entry. So I was really interested in those pieces. So I thought it was going to be that. And I said to Jacob, I think these, uh, and to Jess too, I think these, pe these, these are going to be like ghosts that are in the book, you know, like P.T. Barnum and Narcissa and Abraham Lincoln, and, but also weird people like uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder's daughter and Frank Sinatra's mother. I was actually more interested in those people. Um, and then, then, of course, that didn't happen. I mean, I wrote the first hero villain. It was this crazy, asinine piece <laughs> that all this reading I had done started exploding into. And that just kept happening through those, which was a real huge gift. For, that was the uh, surprise mm -hmm. for me as the writer. And so it was really cool. And all the whole time, I'm reading these crazy Dean Martin biographies and 2,000 pages on Elvis and you know, just tons of shit, American fantastic shit. Um, and then just living in it. It was fantastic. So what I thought was going to happen, and Jacob was like, that sounds like, uh, when I first said it, he's like, that sounds like a Neil Gaiman thing, right? I Jacob think he said is, Neil Diamond. But, no. yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what? And, and, then, and then it changed. But, but I thought it was going to be these ghost-like things. And Jess was like, they should live in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Did I? Yes. Everyone should live in Canada. Jess was like, there should be all these weird ghosts up in Canada. <laughs> I don't even remember that. But it feels funny to be talking about uh, Dean Martin while I'm holding a cocktail at a microphone. It feels sort of surreal. Uh, and then, and then, while those anchor it, it's really the thing that gives it um, humanity is this guy Miller Kane traveling with Carlene, with right. his young charge, his girlfriend's daughter. Right. Um, and that that decision, while uh, I remember being cynical about that too, I'm like, it's Lolita, and um, so is Kate. Kate is too. Yeah. Um, but but that I think humanizes. Uh, and makes him want to be better in the face of all this absurdity. Um, and that I think that hopefulness, which that last piece um, you know, really captures, was what, I mean, wh why care about this unless there's some hope at the end? Right. Is, is, is that what yeah. Carlene represents? I don't know. I mean, I think Carlene's such a cool little kid. And Nance Van Winkle's here. Nance loved her like, like I think I did, and she'd send me notes about her. And I just <laughs> loved her. I loved Carlene. I thought she was so awesome and cool and weird. But I would do things, and either Jess or Kate would be like, mm, he's touching her too much. <laughs> or he's rubbing her too much. This is going to feel weird. And so I was always worried about, like, is the reader going to think we're going to pedophilia? Because I never wanted that in any way. you know. And I think we, we avoided it, but that was a fear the whole way through. Like, I don't want any, any fear on the reader's part about this little girl going to be fucked up again by this guy. Yeah. She's already been so damaged. Yeah, right. But um, she's also so strong and cool. Yeah. Well, and I love the way her, the, her writing comes in, and I love the, the echoes of Miller and her hero-villain piece. I mean, even the rhythm of it. You see but that might just be out the flaw. No, but you see her start yeah. to approach her, you see her start to approach his rhythm and then get into her own. Um, so uh, this won't be the last version of this novel. Right, so, so now I have to rewrite it. And you will? Yeah, so now yeah. I'll rewrite it. And, and, and I hope I don't have to do too much. Um, and, but I've never read it all the way through, you know, from start to end. Um, and I know Jacob hasn't either, because I asked him earlier tonight. 
Um, so I reread it right before this. So I'm the only <laughs> so one who does my homework, apparently. Yeah, right. uh, and and so talk about that process. Will so that... yeah, so I know things I want to add. So so one of the main things I want to add is is this thing about um, I'm really interested in the scam because I don't think I got enough of the P.T. Barnum into the book. So I want to have these things where you know there are testimonials from people who Miller has ripped off. At massacres, so I want, and and maybe there'll be three of them. I don't think there'll be more than four. Maybe three or four. It'll be testimonial one, testimonial two, and it will be people talking about what they got from the the scam. And one of them will be positive, and one of them will not be positive. But I want how he's ripping people off to come closer to the surface and to be more Barnum-like. Because Barnum also really did deliver something to people. His whole thing was always like, you know what? P the, the thing about the scam with people is they want to see through it. They want to know they're smarter than you think they are. So when you put up this bullshit, the Fiji mermaid or whatever it was he did, and they say, that's not real, he goes, that's what they want. They want to know that they're smarter than you think they are. That's the bigger, that's the double scam. Mm -hmm. You know, so I want I want more of his more of Miller's scam scammy scam to come through. And I think Jess wants that too, more the darker side of him that so we don't just have that there's something like that's pretty dark and fucked up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite novelists is Richard Powers uh, because he does things to test his own voice, to change the way he writes. Um, he went a year without speaking one time to see how it affected his writing voice. He wrote an entire novel in voice activation software to see what it sounded like to talk a novel out. So I was thinking about that with you, how this process might change you as a writer, writing on deadline, um, thinking about story in a way that will bring people along. Um, you know, the, how many days before the last section ran before you finished it? Uh, Jacob, Jacob, do you remember? Two? Three? Two days, yeah. Um, three days? Which is the opposite of how novelists work. Do, yeah. So when you see yourself approaching more writing, how do you think this will have I mean, I definitely want, I mean, and Kay taught me this too, of like, you can talk about your work. I believed in the Hemingway thing of, you better not talk about it. <laughs> don't ever talk about the work. And so I didn't. And what I learned in this, pro but I also, but I also had people I really, really trusted. So I didn't go to anybody that I didn't really, really trust. And what they were doing was also risky because they were acting as editors, but they were also acting as collaborators. So they had to step in, Kate and Jess and Jacob and Rob had to step in and be like, this is what I think you should do. Which we don't usually say to writers. When we read their work, we're like, okay, this is cool, this is good. We usually don't say, do this, do that. And I said to them, please t tell me what you think. And so that collaboration was really the coolest thing I've ever, it was more like playing in a band. It was the coolest thing I've ever done as a writer to have them in the room with me and saying, you should do this. And me being like, I can't get into any ego shit with this. Jess is right. This is what I'm going to do. Or Kate is right. This is what I need to do. So I want to do that again. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think Jess is always right. All right, well, I hope you'll stay around for Balonely. Sam will be wandering around. He wants to answer all your questions. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for Get coming. Let's give it up for Sam Ligon. And thanks, Miller Ted Kane, and Jacob. The Inlander, Jess, Jacob and Ted. Kate, Rob. Readers, America. America. Fuck yeah. You've been listening to a special bonus episode of the Miller Kane podcast. 
Our theme music is by Indian Goat. I'm your producer, Chris Massini. If you missed an episode of Miller Kane, you can now listen to the novel in its entirety on this podcast or at spokanepublicradio.org slash millercane. You can also read the full text of the novel online at millercane.inlander.com.